Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Bias Agency Australia. Cash flow puts food on the tables. There's there's a lot of people out there who are millionaires in theory, uh, but they're living a pauper lifestyle because they can't unlock the cash uh, and actually put that into their into their assets. So, the, you know, these conversations that we're having uh, through this series are going to help people to actually understand how do they position themselves much better uh, moving forward. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Sharm and in this special episode, we're speaking with Rob Flux from Property Developer Network. He shares all there is to know about the three different approaches to investing and the importance of finding the deal that ticks all the right boxes. Last but certainly not least, he also reveals how you can make money from a property without ever owning it. There are so many ways to look at and approach property investment and Flux has a wealth of experience in all of them, whether it be his own property journey or a member of Property Developer Network, he's seen it all and is keen to share. While each strategy has its distinct characteristics, he notes that they have a lot more in common than it may appear. Everyone tends to go through a journey in the way they want to attack uh, their investment approach based on where they are in their life, uh, what their risk profiles are and a whole bunch more. Um, And in most instances, they'll start out as a normal everyday investor. So what I like to refer to as a passive investor. Now, by passive, what I mean there is that, look, we take a small amount of effort at the start, but then we kind of let the property do the work and we let the market do the heavy lifting for us. Uh, And so it's a long term approach and we're not really doing a heck of a lot on a day to day basis other than keeping our property managers at bay and making sure that they're doing their job uh, appropriately. But then the next approach is, I guess, the exact opposite of that. That is an active approach and that is, uh, I guess, the property development realm, so an active uh, developer uh, and they are putting lots of sweat equity into the process. So lots of knowledge, lots of effort in order to force value onto the property. Uh, Then there's the, well, what happens if I want to be halfway in between? How do I go from one to the other? And that is a semi-passive investor Uh, where they might be an investor that partners with a developer in some way, shape or form and lots of different ways that they can actually partner in doing that. So there's really those three phases, mate, that, uh, that, that people can approach and there's massive differences between each of those approaches, how you look at a deal, how you fund a deal, how you assess a deal, what sort of returns, what sort of timelines, like the, the amount of, uh, 
uh, even your risk profiles, everything changes massively along the way for each of those. So we want to flesh that out today. Uh, it gives some people some insights into, uh, you know, what does the scary world of development look like and how do we maybe get there? Well, what would be really good just also for me to sort of understand this is maybe to provide examples of maybe the passive investor, the active developer and a semi-passive so I think we kind of just talked a little bit about it just a moment ago, what that is. Um, that's basically the, the who, the how, but we're kind of thinking, okay, who is that typical? Would that be sort of like someone who's maybe just bought one or two investment properties, has like a principal place residence and, you know, up to people who have like dozens and dozens of properties who are just hold, buying and holding? Buy and hold is the investor type approach. That is the long and the hold part is exactly the passive uh, part that I was actually referring to is that you're not really doing a lot with it. We're just collecting properties. So if you're a person who collects properties, uh, almost certainly you're an investor. And, you know, there's only really a couple of reasons to be buying a property in the first place. And, and I think some people don't really put the right energy into why am I buying the property in the first place? Um, so there's really four reasons. So there's capital gains, there's cash flow, there's manufactured profit, uh, and lastly, there's the lifestyle. Now, principal place of residence is very clearly lifestyle. Um, uh, investment is really the capital gains and the cash flow side of things. Uh, and the property development is the manufactured profits where, you know, we're putting, we're putting our sweat equity into forcing value onto the property. Um, then there's the, well, what happens if you do do property development and you keep some stuff? Well, then you actually segue between forcing value on and then you just sit on your profits and let that grow with the market as an investment as well. So, you know, there's ways to combine both of those strategies together. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the interesting part is that you've done both, you know, and you are also doing both still. <laughs> well, I like to think of myself as a, uh, a wholesale investor. So I'm manufacturing the profit uh, into it. So I'm manufacturing the, the properties at a wholesale rate and then trying to keep keep those ongoing. And that wholesale is, you know, I guess the, the, the value that I've forced on, but then I keep it long-term for the passive cash flow that it actually generates. And, and it really comes down to the fact that, you know, there's really uh, two kinds of return that you're actually going to get out of a property. Um, one is wealth creation, and that is the capital gains. Uh, wealth creation means that, you know, you could be a millionaire on paper, but being a millionaire on paper doesn't actually put food on the table. We always laugh about that one. <laughs> uh, cash flow puts food on the tables. There's there's a lot of people out there who are millionaires in theory, uh, but they're living a pauper lifestyle because they can't unlock the cash uh, and actually put that into their into their assets. So, the, you know, these conversations that we're having uh, through this series are going to help people to actually understand how do they position themselves much better uh, moving forward. And I guess on the flip side as well, just from my experience in seeing that developers are also very similar as well too because developments can take anywhere between two, three, five, ten years sometimes depending on how large the development is and unfortunately equity is locked in as well you know until the property is actually gets sold sometimes they can take that long but i've done deals that are only six weeks in nature and, and I, i've my record is a six weeks turnaround for 194k profit mate so uh you know that, that that's not my record from a uh from a amount of cash but it, that's a record for the fastest i've turned a project around that is phenomenal. So actually, yeah, then I'll, I'll be corrected on that. Six weeks, anyway, up to 10 years, <laughs> even longer. <laughs> 
Oh, that's awesome. But yeah, I think the, the interesting thing is that there's so many different ways to look at this and being on a passive approach, yes, you can accumulate and buy all these properties but if the cash flow is not there, then you're pretty much as you said on paper, you've got all this equity that's sitting in there but to unlock it, you know, you got to do it a different way whereas a developer wants to try and extract the equity out as quick as possible so they can use it onto the next project or you know, live their lifestyle, whatever they choose to do with it, which is phenomenal. So I think what would be really interesting to talk about then is to jump in as we kind of touched on the reasons why you buy property and then the different perspectives behind it. So should we take a look and have a look at say capital gains because that's an interesting topic we just kind of just touched on right now but let's delve a little bit deeper on that one. Well, capital gains is uh, I guess I guess the value that is actually uh, added to the property by letting the market do the uplift so you buy it at one price and you sell it at another price that is the capital gain. Uh, the ATO loves to have their little uh, uh, grab at that when we actually do eventually cash in. But if you never cash in, you don't actually pay tax on capital gain. Uh, so I guess you want to try and get to the point where you're not having to uh, sell your properties down to put food, food on the table, mate. That's right. But at the same time, you know, if, if the strategy is just to hold on to these properties and try and not pay tax, which we don't want to be not doing, but at the same time, uh, I guess, how do you extract that out from a passive investor point of view? And, and, and this is where the challenge I'm looking and going, you got this massive portfolio, you know, so I know some people have got $20 million property portfolio, but they still got $100,000 in debt every, or having to pay every year, $100,000 in cash flow to be able to keep this portfolio going alive. That's a that's not a very good outcome, you know, in that many properties. I'll talk to a an approach to get that out, which is not one that I subscribe to, but I know certainly number of people that actually do. But I guess there's firstly when we look at it, if you're looking for a capital gain type perspective, we're we're letting the market do the heavy lifting, and it's a long term uh, type approach. And in the short term, that's going to have some cash flow implications. It's going to uh, consume some uh, some equity in, in order to put the deposit down uh, and it potentially is going to consume some serviceability in order to fund the debt that's actually going to get there. And so for the first uh, five or six years, um, you're in a position where it's kind of only just washing its own face in, in many instances. And if you're negative gearing, it's actually going backwards and actually hurting you whilst you're waiting for the capital gain to actually start to come in. So there's a little bit, if you look at the, the matrix of time versus, uh, I guess, return, it gets to a point where you can be negative geared and actually, so it's actually cash flow out of your pocket, but at some point it actually gets to the point where it actually turns around, where it actually starts to come uh, back in your favor. And so uh, for me personally, from an investment point of view, and remembering I've done 20 years of investing and, and 15 years of developing, um, Negative gearing is just, it, it's a really bad uh, business model in my humble opinion. I mean, that's the reason why we look at positive cash flow properties nowadays because it's self, supposed to be self-sustaining. But once it gets to the point where it's, whole, it's washing its own face and it's positive uh, geared from that perspective, then as time starts to go on, not only is the capital starting to grow, but typically your rents are going to start to go up as well. And it starts to get better and better and better the longer you actually hold it. So there's this segue where you're trying to get to to that one, I guess, the, the crossover where those two uh, start to collide. And once you've beaten that, then you can afford to hold anything for as long as you want to. Uh, but it's that's the hard part to get. And that's where property development 
enables us to get to that segue much, much faster because we're, we're actually forcing the value on. And rather than buying it at what I call retail price, where somebody else has made a profit out of it, we're manufacturing it at wholesale price, uh, which means that the the equity that we build into it, uh, I guess, day one, uh, I guess our sweat equity that's gone into it. So we get to that segue much faster. Which is very similar to what you've kind of said. You've done a, a deal in six weeks and you've made capital gains on that one in a very short space of six weeks. No, I did not make a capital gain on that. And we'll talk about taxes in a sec. Um, I made a profit and very distinctly different um, uh, and maybe we segue into the taxes that apply to them right now, mate. So we better, we better distinguish this, the difference between a capital gain compared to a profit um, Yeah, for the audience and also my sake because I am now going, okay, yeah, you were probably right actually thinking about how this is different. I want to put a great big asterisk and a disclaimer here to say I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, I can't give financial advice, all those sorts of things. But the ATO looks at your intent, okay? So if your intent is to be a long-term investor and hold on to the property, then they're going to say that capital gains applies and they're going to allow the market to do the lifting and they're just going to look at the uplift in the market. If you're doing, uh, I guess, property development where you're forcing value onto the property, then the ATO deems that as what they call an enterprise. Now, an enterprise is... I guess you have the purpose of actually going out and manufacturing something. And it's in this instance, we're manufacturing property is our widget. Um, and so we're turning one something into many somethings. Um, and so they're going to say, well, if you're running an enterprise, you're effectively running a business. If you're running a business, then GST starts to apply instead. So you can owe, you can pay CGT or GST. You can't pay both. Uh, it's an either or type tax. That's really interesting because then at the beginning and, and sometimes this is where I think people stumble into this or particularly property investors when they first start this, they may go, okay, look, I've got some property here. I may have held it for maybe two or three years and I decide I'm going to do a renovation in a very short space of maybe six to you know 10 weeks or something like that. They have renovated a property and then decide to put it on the market to sell. I'm not sort of leading into sort of any answers for questions for these because it's going to be sort of like a tax accountant type of question. But it's interesting because that's what we got to differentiate the difference here. Whereas if you're straight out developer, then you would be thinking, okay, I'm going to be really running a business from the start and everything that I make from, you know, the, the developments of these properties is essentially profit, you know, business profit, which you can actually consider as being. In that example that you just gave, mate, the, the, intent and remember that's what the ATO looks at the intent was that somebody was going to long-term hold that and at the tail end of that then they force some value on through the renovation so the ATO looks at well the original intent when you actually acquired the property was the long-term buy and hold and so the bit that you did at the end they go is just you really realizing that the best return for that original intent and so the, the dis that's the distinction so if you had have bought it with the intention of flipping it on the spot and getting rid of it straight away, then they would have said, well, that is a business. Uh, whereas if you're holding it and then you renovate it at the end, then they say, well, actually, that's an investment. That, that's the subtlety. Um, there is a segue from a timeline perspective where it kind of gets a little bit murky. Um, uh, I'm going to high, highly recommend you go talk to your accountant uh, as to uh, where that blurry line starts to, uh, to fade. Um, and equally, it's, it becomes blurry if you manufacture it up front 
and then choose to to then hold it at the end. So there's also a, a, a segue between, well, when does um, GST turn into CGT if you hold the asset that you kept, that you manufactured uh, for the long term? Gosh, okay. That is definitely an accountant slash tax advice there that someone will need to seek on. So that's very interesting though because it gives you the different perspectives that can happen. And, and I think, you know, from my perspective as a sort of a passive investor as well to you typically buy the property and you go, yep, you know, it's, it's been sitting there and holding well. And then, and I can give you an example actually. It's my principal place of residence. I bought it. We lived in it for about five years. And then after five years, we, we decided to rent it out. But before I rented it out, I went in and just did a reno for it. Just uplifted the bathroom, the kitchen, painted it and everything. And now it's turned into an investment property. And that's typically the segue. Well, let's have a look at that one example, mate. So um, remember I said there are four ways or four reasons to buy a property. So you bought for lifestyle, okay? So when you when you assessed that property right up front, you didn't assess it for the capital gains and you didn't assess it for the cash flow purposes. You assessed it because, hey, it met your family needs, okay? Uh, then when you, I guess, decided your family needs has moved on, you've decided, look, I want to potentially uh, put an invest, uh, I guess, turn this into an investment, but you hadn't gone and chosen, is this the best place for capital growth? You didn't go and assess, was this the best place to get my cash flow? Uh, and so that particular property, while it might be performing well, is there potentially an opportunity for you to say, could I have done better by putting that money somewhere into, into a different property? Uh, and I think a lot of people do that really quick. Oh, I've already got it. I'll just keep it. Um, and they don't do the hard assessment to go, actually, is my money working hard enough if I if I actually left it there? And in some instances, it is. Some instances, not. And that's exactly right. Just from my personal perspective, I've held that one for now 12 years. And I look back, if I had actually purchased a, a block or a house, a land and house package out, say, maybe 10 minutes down the road from where it is, I would have done tremendously better because it's got a land and house whereas this is in the complex of townhouses that we purchased. It suited our needs, you know, when we were younger and we thought, okay, that's great. You know, we're going to have a, a small family. Obviously, the fam that, that, that family house didn't turn into a big enough house to, to live us. So, that's the reason why and then I just thought, you kind of get busy with family. This is the challenge we all face when we have young kids, have a family and stuff like that. You end up just go, okay, put this on the side and, and just you know, live life. But then you realize after a few years seeing capital growth and the changes in the market, then you go, hmm, maybe you know, five years ago, I should have just offloaded and then bought something else as well. So it's a good point that you raised there. <laughs> this is the wisdom of hindsight. And so uh, for everyone out there listening, uh, learn from the lessons from both of us uh, and say you should be regularly assessing every single one of your properties uh, at, at least every six months and preferably every three to say, firstly, out of those four reasons that I bought it, is it actually meeting its original intended purpose? Now, remember, the markets are going to go up and down. There are going to be times where lots of capital growth happens in a very short period of time, and there's going to be other times where that doesn't occur. And so you might have a look at your portfolio and say, well, right now, is this property performing as intended? Uh, and if it's not, then ask yourself the question, can I do better with my money? And is it the right time for me to actually turn that over? Very, very good questions, which kind of also leads me to ask the question about cash flow too because we just talked about capital gains you know particularly for just a buy and hold strategy and yes it's very important to assess that and as markets have gone don't get me wrong the property i had had doubled quite quite well but as i was saying could have been 
invest into another location. Cash flow wise though, that's interesting because the cash flow on this one, after I think maybe about, yeah, I think it's about five years or so, it started just paying itself off and, and it has been since then, which is exactly what we talked about at the beginning. When you start getting to a certain point, you might buy a property that's a little bit negatively geared and then after a few years, bang, it starts to become positive cash flow because of the capital growth and the cash that you receive from the rental increases and so forth. So maybe let's have a chat a little bit about the differences between cash flow for, say, a passive investor compared to, say, a developer or active developer. Well, in order to do that, we need to understand that for any investment, whether it be passive or whether it be active, there are really three lots of cash that you need to worry about. Okay. So the first one is the deposit in order to purchase the property. Uh, The second one is the debt in order to, to, to fund the balance of that purchase. And the third one is any liquid cash that you need to actually uh, get the deal to work. So you might need uh, stamp duties and searches and you know that sort of thing from an investment perspective, or you might not might need development approvals and uh, you know town planners and that sort of thing from a development perspective. So those three levels of cash uh, are needed uh, for any deal at all. If you then start to have a look at, well, when do I need that? Well. There's the acquisition phase where you need to actually assess how much those three elements are needed. If you then start to go into a development, you then need to go into, well, what about a construction phase? So I'm going to need, I guess, more, I guess the banks start to call it equity. They changed the word deposit over to the word equity and they say, well, you need more equity because you're going to go into bigger debt. Uh, You need to increase the amount of debt because you're now constructing as well. Uh, and the liquid cash to run the deal starts to go up um, as well. And then the third phase is, well, if I start to sell some of those down uh, and then I get to keep some of the the stock at the end, uh, any residual stock that I have, which then goes back to kind of an acquisition type approach. So you've got those three different stages with three lots of cash needed, uh, and it's about having a look at, I guess, the peak of each of those to say, when do I need the most amount of cash to actually run this? And for some people, they don't have the cash and so they, I guess, just stay at the acquisition model and they don't worry about construct and they don't worry about retaining anything else. And some people uh, get really, really creative in their funding models and say, well, what if I never purchased the property in the first place? Is that even possible? Can I do a deal and make money and never fund it? That's getting down to really advanced strategies there. Like lots of different ways, lots of different ways. But it's it's probably a really good when we look at those three elements. A typical uh, typical residential property, whether it be for cash flow, whether it be for capital gains, the bank is really looking at, uh, I guess, a twenty or thirty year uh, investment type approach. And so they're really looking at: Can you afford to actually pay this on an ongoing basis? The bank is taking a little bit of a risk that you're going to keep your job for all those 20 odd years. So they take a very conservative approach to how you, can you afford it. And so the equity or the deposit upfront and the serviceability tend to be their primary uh, assessment criteria to make sure that that is actually the case. When you say that, it's really interesting because that seems to be you know, the reason why a lot of people seem to stay in their PAYG jobs because they just want to show the bank that they can actually just borrow for those purposes to buy more property. But when it comes to, say, for example, trying to generate more income you know, through a business, there's, there's a reason why they want those business owners to have actually a minimum of two years in business before they can actually assess them just to see if they're viable, which is really fascinating because like, 
in my opinion, I still think that the banks are still going off the stone ages because what happens if, say, for example, yeah, you, your serviceability goes shot because you lose your job only for a short period of time, but you know, you know you've got lots of equity in your properties and you've been proving that you're servicing it, then you know that basically stops you from being able to borrow. It's just, in my opinion, still a little bit of a very stone age kind of philosophy or assessment criteria. The banks are controlled by some regulations with uh, APRA d- dictating that, look, the bank has to actually make sure that the bank is a viable business. That's really important. So APRA is making sure that you know the economy as a whole can actually stand up on its own two feet as the property market goes up and down. You don't want banks to be, uh, I guess, uh, under duress. So you know, APRA is really designed about protecting the bank and making, and also trying to protect the investor to make sure that they're not overcommitting themselves in that process. But what's really interesting is that, say, for example, you have bought a property that is positive cash flow from day one. It can fund itself, even give you additional cash. But the, the bank doesn't really take that into criteria at this point in time as much as they used to, um, which makes it really challenging. So that's why I'm saying. How do people really get out of that situation to be able to sort of move forward to even if they've got a large portfolio of properties? I think it comes down to, I guess, the the investment approach. So if you're trying to do the long-term hold, the bank is constrained by those APRA regulations. And so it's very easy to do bank bashing and say, look, damn those banks, they're, you know, they're always against us. But APRA is really the one who's dictating, I guess, the amount of uh, serviceability that they're able to take into consideration. They won't take into consideration all the rent, for example. Um, they also need to stress test the interest rate that it is actually applying at any one moment in time and you know, add a buffer on top of whatever the current rate is and make sure that you can still afford that. So APRA is trying to do that to protect the consumer, right? Um, but what happens if you don't have those resources? What happens if you don't have I guess, the deposit to purchase a property and what happens if you don't have the serviceability? Does that mean you can't get into a deal? Definitely not. (laughs) That was very deliberately a loaded question uh, because that's where property development starts to come into its own, okay? Because rather than looking at a 20 or 30-year loan horizon, the banks now start to look at this as to say, well, I gave an example before, six weeks, right? They start to take a much shorter view of the deal itself and they look at the deal and they're not really so much worried about your serviceability side of things, but rather, is the deal profitable? Is is this actually going to make some money? Now, they're taking a little bit of risk on the fact that you know what you're doing um, and they're not taking... 30 years worth of interest out of you. So they tend to shorten the timeline and they ratchet up the interest rate. So their profits stay pretty similar, just for the record. Um, So you pay a higher interest rate, but now serviceability doesn't actually start to factor in when you're starting to get more commercial style development uh, loans. Uh, And so that then starts to create really, really interesting scenarios to say, well, if I no longer, if we look at those three elements, if I no longer have serviceability as an issue, then all I really need is the equity for the deposit and the liquid cash to run the deal. And so cash starts to become a lot more uh, important from a development perspective. Or what I like to call working, working equity, the ability to pull the cash out of it. If you then start to get really, really creative in how you acquire the property, maybe you might even eliminate one of those, meaning what if I don't need a deposit at all, right? Now it's just the liquid cash to run the deal. 
Now, that's some create. We're going to talk about this on one of our future uh, episodes in in how can we do low and no money down deals. But I want to give people just a little bit of an insight to say, if you never purchase the property, why do you need a deposit? I love that question. And I'm going to sort of give it a bit of a hint for people to just have to think about potentially there could be vendor financing options, all those kind of different advanced strategies. Delayed settlement with early access, all sorts of things. There's seven different ways that we can actually make money from property by never owning it. Yes, I love that. That's going to be definitely a future episode because uh, there's a lot to it that we would probably need to unpack. <laughs> That's a very big topic, my friend. I love it. And, and this is what I also love about development because I've been on both sides and I'm, I'm sort of more leaning towards the active development side because that's where I've been seeing that space, particularly the finance side of things, is that it's very, very important to make sure that when you are assessing to do a deal, particularly from the perspective of an active developer, that there is going to be enough capital for the future project. Because if you work out that, okay, you know, I've got enough to acquire the property, but after acquiring the property, there's just enough cash to do certain things like getting consultants on board and so forth, but you don't have enough to be able to continue with the working capital, then you could pretty much come to a standing halt and that could potentially, you know, be detrimental to a project. So, it's something that, you know, people need to consider as well because it's not something that you just hop in and go, you know, buy a property like a buy and hold strategy that you go, okay, I just got to fund the deposit, I got to fund, you know, all the stamp duty fees, et cetera, costs and stuff like that and you're done. It's not as simple as that. There's actually a lot of things that people don't really even talk about until it actually gets to the point where, oh, gosh, you know, there's all these additional costs that require to get the project complete to the stage where you can sell it and make money. Liquid cash, my friend, is the answer to any approach. So whether you are a passive investor or an active investor, uh, liquid cash is the, uh, the thing that will grind you to a halt very, very fast. Coming up after the break, Flux examines the property investment catchphrase that many misunderstand. The reason why most people don't have a good grasp on it is because they're, they're sold on a dream of something that is a little bit out of reach. The differences between assessing an investment and a development and why it's so crucial to make that distinction. Each property is its has its own parameters that sit in and around behind it. So you need to actually take quite a scientific approach to how you actually assess it. We dive into factors such as population growth, the government and how the closed borders over COVID-19 took a bigger toll than we may have realized. So what's happening right now and, and I'm mindful that you know somebody might be listening to this podcast in a couple of years time, uh, what's happening right now is the property market is starting to, to slow down because the government is deliberately slowing it down. So, And that's next. I'm Taran Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Do you find yourself stressed out not knowing how or where to find the best property deals or what the best strategy is to build a wealth generating portfolio? Well, Dragon Dominski can help you while you save time and money. With about two decades of experience as an investor and expert buyer's agent, he finds positively geared properties with development potentials and secures and negotiates off-market deals for his clients. Now, he's offering you a no-obligation 45-minute strategy call to get you started. Just simply text the code BAA with your name and email address to 0405 105 
0-800-242-074 to get your no-obligation free 45-minute strategy call. Flux has detailed the different possibilities, cash flow and capital gains for both active and passive investors. The last on our list is lifestyle, one of the biggest reasons people plunge into property. What we're trying to build, I guess, is in any of the approaches is the ultimate goal that everyone's after, which is financial freedom, right? It's this much maligned word that everybody talks about, but nobody really has a good grasp on it. Uh, and the reason why most people don't have a good grasp on it is because they're, they're sold on a dream of something that is a little bit out of reach. You know, it's people standing in front of fancy cars and in front of big houses and that sort of thing saying, this is what financial freedom looks like. But in reality, financial freedom is just enough passive income to pay your debts. Now, that statement I want people to resonate on because most people actually are living a fairly meagre lifestyle. Uh, the Australian average income is about eighty to eighty-five thousand dollars per year, and we're living within our means typically, which means that by the time we put food on the table, fuel in the car, send the kids to school, that sort of thing, the majority of us are living. If we're singles, I guess under that 80K mark and as couples, somewhere probably around the 120K mark worth of expenses, uh, which means that we actually don't need a lot of passive income to actually pay our debts. Now, it won't give us the fancy car and it won't give us, I guess, the, the flash house, but it will mean that the lifestyle you're living today can be fully funded without you having to ever work again. And at that point, time is free, Okay. Uh, and then you can do anything you want with your time, including going out and making more money so you can get the fancy car. That's if you choose to? If you choose to. <laughs> that is correct if you choose to. That's fascinating because I think that's the, the thing is that the reason why we're talking about this, especially on the podcast, is to give people options because ultimately, if you can cover all your expenses, be let's say financially free, which is to basically not worry about any of your day-to-day living expenses and you have the time and freedom, to be able to do those other things that you might enjoy, whether it be going to become a more active developer or you want to just buy and hold and become a pa- passive investor. That's the thing I guess you got to consider as well too because this stuff does sometimes take time and if you don't have the time and you're working a full-time job and that's taking all of your effort or you've got a, a family that you've got to look after and so forth, that's taking a lot of time, you got to be able to find the time to be able to free that up and if you're worrying about all the day-to-day living expenses and stress of that, it's going to be very, very challenging to get in. And, and that's a very, very good point that you've actually raised as well too. I think the difference, when we start to look at the difference between investor and a developer, the timelines to become financially free are very, very different, okay? So what we're looking at from an investment point of view, we're typically letting the market do the heavy lifting. So we need, the market's going to go through cycles and and typically market cycle is every seven to 10 years that the property will double. That's the, I guess, the the rhetoric that's out there in the market. Um, so by the time you actually start to do that, um, you might start to accumulate a few properties, hit a glass ceiling. Hey, I can't get any more deposit. I can't get any more serviceability. You have to wait for the property to lift up enough to then pull some equity out to then reload that again. So it takes a while to actually do that. And eventually, if you can collect enough properties, you pay a couple down because they've doubled in value that pays down your debt and all of a sudden you've got your cash flow. Yeah, that, that's the magic of that but that can take anywhere up to 20 odd years to do. That's certainly what it took me the first time around that I did it. Um, it works, absolutely. 
um, but it, you know, it's a long, slow, gradual process. But not everyone's got 20 years to hang around, and so that's where uh, property development comes in, and you can start to manufacture the profits, which means you can compress the timelines massively. But in order to compress the timeline, you increase the effort involved on your behalf because. Uh, you know, you have to actually learn the trade. You have to apply the trade. You have to go find the deal. You have to run the deal. It takes quite a bit to actually make that happen. But when we're talking about, you know, somewhere in that uh, 80 to 120K uh, passive income type approach, we find a lot of people are actually do, able to do that uh, and generate that passive income in about five years. It's fascinating because you've seen it from both approaches and as you said, it's taking you at least up to 20 years to build that passive in- investor type of approach and then after that, you switched over to become a developer. Is it something that if you, with hindsight, would you have started on going down the active developer approach first before going to maybe semi-passive? In hindsight, it's very easy to say absolutely. So, the first time it took me 20 years, the second time it took me six um, if I had to do it again now, it would take me three. And that's because I've learned from the lessons of everything bef- before and I can actually apply that and accelerate much faster. But I wouldn't be where I am today unless I went through that pain. <laughs> uh, and so I guess it's much easier for me to now look at it and say, yeah, I can actually do that now in in, in three to five years for most people. And that would be the approach that I'd recommend. But not legally allowed to recommend, so I can't. <laughs> uh, all I can actually say is, hey, here's an alternative. Uh, if you, you know, if you've got the time, if you've got the, the, I guess the, the effort and the inclination and the ability to take on that workload, then you know that approach is much faster. But you know, it's not get rich quick, mate. Um, it's just get rich. And that's the thing. It's it, it's also dependent on your personality trait as well too, which is actually the perfect kind of segue into this because it's not suitable for everyone. You know, what we're talking about here could be, might be like, no, nah, this is not for me because I'm very conservative. I just want to, you know, buy my properties, sit back, hold it and then just wait. Whereas other people like myself who are a little bit impatient <laughs> want to actually move a little bit faster. So, It'd be actually interesting to, to share, you know, what your, your thoughts is on that with the different types of personalities who might be suitable for these type of different, uh, yeah, views. You touched on a really interesting thing there, which is risk. Everyone's risk profile is something very, very different. Um, I've got a slightly different approach on that, okay? Um, so, firstly, I'm going to quote someone that everybody knows, Warren Buffett. Um, he talks about risk coming only comes from when you don't know what you're doing. Okay, so when you when you educate yourself, you're going to be able to, to identify the risk and put a risk management plan in place. Then the vi- nice simple solution, I think we touched on this on episode one, we're told that crossing the road is risky when we're a kid, but we get told look left, look right, look left again, and you can cross and navigate the road quite safely. But the risk has never changed. The risk is still there, the car is still dangerous. Uh, but we now know how to navigate that. And the second part to risk is, are you in control of your destiny? Now, I would actually argue that if you're buying a property and letting the market do the heavy lifting, the market's going to go up and down at different points in time. And there might be a time when the market is down, you have life's, lifestyle circumstances change, you might be made redundant, you might get sick, those sorts of things. The market is down at that point in time you are no longer in control of whether or not you're actually maximizing your investment. And so 
the risk is equally uh, applies to both, but the perceived risk is different. Now, investment has a, I guess, a little bit of a forgiving trait in that time will heal uh, all mistakes. <laughs> and if you wait long enough, uh, the market will come back and it'll recover and that sort of thing. But not, not everyone's got the, the benefit of time to just wait it out. That's right. And also not the benefit of having money because, for example, when uh, I guess my, my parents purchased a property at the top of a boom, they were hoping, hoping I guess, that it'd go up in capital gains. But unfortunately, the market turned so quickly and they had to hold on a particular property for many, many years, for about five years. But it got to a point where they couldn't hold on to it because the cash flow became extremely challenging to be able to fund, even with the rent that was provided. So they had to make a tough decision and sell. And they sold at pretty much at the bottom of the market, unfortunately. And these are typical stories I've heard from mum and dad investors, unfortunately. And then a couple of years later, bang, you know, market doubled. And, you know, if only they could have held for two more years, it would have been okay. But yeah, it, it's it's sad. But um, I guess when you think about it, that's that's the thing you've got to take in consideration is whether or not that is something that you can do. And it is something that it could be part of mitigating any of the risks that are involved because you've got to actually understand what are involved and, uh, and take that knowledge behind you. Part of that is about assessing the deal, um, whether that be a property development deal or an investment deal. Part of that is actually assessing the market, right? Uh, because the market's going to change uh, at all points in time and each property is its has its own parameters that sit in and around behind it. So you need to actually take quite a scientific approach to how you actually assess it. Now, interestingly, the way you assess an investment is very, very different to how you assess a development. Now, so when you're looking at an investment, remember, you're assessing it for really two factors, capital gains or, or cash flow. So depending on your investment approach, you, you're going to look at those two. Um, which might mean that you, uh, I guess, the, the supply and demand of an area, the market demographics, all those sorts of things that, that will go into those elements. But we tend to have a look at that and, and we tend to look at what we call market indicators. Now, an indicator is something that looks back in time, so something that's already happened. So auction clearance rates, median house prices, uh, days on market, you know, those things have already occurred. The problem with that approach is that when it's when you get to measure it is actually a result of a decision that typically happened about four months ago. So as an example, I decide to sell my property. I then go through a, a little bit of a process where I need to go out and talk to a whole bunch of uh, agents. The agents tell me, hey, what you need to do is you need to clean up your property. You need to renovate in this way, paint those walls, those sorts of things. You get it ready, get it market ready. Then you put a marketing campaign together. You put it on market. It, you know, a few weeks of open, uh, open houses. Finally, get a contract. You wait for some time. That will eventually settle. It's the settlement that we're actually measuring on the indicator. But the decision to sell happened four months ago. And so it, it's baffling to me that the that the media talks about auction clearance rates and they talk about median house prices and that sort of thing because they're four or five months behind what actually happened. So much can change in four to five months and that's the problem. Have you seen someone driving down the road and they jump into your lane and they're three quarters into your lane and then they turn the indicator on in the car? Have you ever seen that? It's like saying, I have just turned left. Um, 
where this is kind of what the media are doing. They're, they're looking at these market indicators and saying, oh, doom and gloom, the sky is falling. Well, actually, the sky's already fallen. <laughs> Just most people aren't aware of it yet. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. They kind of bring it to light, basically, you know, four months later. <laughs> Instead, what we want to start to look at is market drivers. Now, market driver is what is the, the, the motivation for that market to actually move? Now, there's actually 16 market drivers and they fall into really four different categories. So one of them is government incentives. So, you know, the, is the government printing money at the moment and creating a whole bunch of jobs? Are they creating a whole bunch of infrastructure in certain areas? Are they giving things like building bonuses and stuff like that? Um, the governments are trying to stimulate the economy, so they do a lot of things to actually stimulate the economy. And I was going to say, with with something like stimulating, though, that takes a few years for that to actually see the effects of it, though. Like, say, for example, during COVID, we had you know some cash boosts and so forth just to help the economy keep it afloat, you know, during that pandemic. But we didn't see the effects of it until literally maybe a year later, you know. And, and that's really interesting because by then it's too late to sort of really jump in. <laughs> but it's not though. That's my point, Tyrone, is that if you're looking at the market drivers, you're seeing that it's going to take a year to happen. And you've got a, a one year view ahead to actually see that's about to happen, right? So I'm looking in my crystal ball, looking in my crystal ball going, <laughs> I can actually start to predict the market. Now, it's a little bit fuzzy. It's not perfect, but we can actually say, hey, those jobs being spent there, the, the, the business bonuses that are actually going in, that's going to start to stimulate the economy. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's very smart. That's the thing that I think I obviously overlooked on that, but like looking back at it and go, okay, that at that point in time when the economy started to take a huge or the property markets that start taking a huge climb up during COVID, that was when I was like, okay, this is pretty much repeating history itself again because that's typically what happens after some kind of war or after some kind of big world event. The property markets and every single market seems to go straight up. There's a few other, I said there's four different categories. The next one is population growth. Now, population growth happens for a couple of different reasons. So there's in, uh, intrastate migration, so people moving from the city to the country, people moving from the country to the city. There's interstate migration, so people moving from one state to the other. Um, there's births, deaths, and marriages. Uh, and then there's international migration with people actually moving across. And so you need to look at that on balance and say, are we actually, is this particular market growing up? Now, an example, during COVID or before COVID, Sydney and Melbourne were growing at a great rate of knots, uh, but during COVID, everyone was fleeing Sydney and Melbourne uh, and moving to Brisbane and Perth, okay? So when you start to see those things, you go, and they're also moving out to the regionals. And so you're seeing that particular areas were getting a huge amount of market drive uh, where others weren't. So you can actually start to see that actually starting to occur. Now, the biggest market driver for population is international migration. And for all of COVID, we had no international migration because all the international borders were shut. So we did not have a market driver pushing the demand on, on uh, property at that point in time. So the government had to stimulate the economy with all of the, uh, I guess, incentives and drivers that they put in from a, 
you know, uh, projects and billions of dollars they spent on their economy to kickstart the economy. So the boom we just had was artificially created. So now that with borders open, then we potentially could see, you know, population growth increase, you know. <laughs> and by the way, Rob's rubbing his hands. <laughs> so what's happening right now, and, and I'm mindful that, you know, somebody might be listening to this podcast in a couple of years time. Uh, what's happening right now is the property market is starting to, to slow down because the government is deliberately slowing it down. So affordability they're changing interest rates. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're making interest rates slow us down. Inflation is going up. The cost of actually being able to afford the property. Um, this is the third of those uh, areas that we need to look at is the housing affordability. Um, uh, unemployment rates, we're at record low unemployment rates at the moment. Uh, so we've got a couple of forces that are kind of pushing. One is some are what I like to call a tailwind. They're pushing us forward uh, and one and some of them are headwinds and they're pushing us back. So you've got to look at all of those on balance and say, have I got more things pushing against me or more things pushing behind me, pushing me forward? Now, right now, we're at a knife's edge and we're kind of, uh, I guess the market is starting to go backwards because of that. But I see a very big switch coming in the not too distant future that's going to be mostly tailwinds. It's interesting because I've, I've had similar uh, thoughts and a few other investors who I've been speaking saying very similar things because when you're looking at all the facts here, it does show that there is potential there. And that's the reason why, as you said, or as we just kind of discussed, sometimes these market leading indicators are at least a year ahead you know of what we should be so perhaps if what we're seeing right now we'll know in a year's time what the outcome will be and hopefully there'll be enough time for us to prepare and the last of those four categories is the true supply and demand okay so when people are moving into an area how much product actually exists there now in most instances the the uh, in order for a product to actually be created, whether it be a house, a townhouse, an apartment, whatever that is, a developer, that's someone like me or my community, actually has a look at the where the population is moving towards and saying, can I put an opportunity in front of that person just as the demand starts to hit? So we have to go through a few phases to make that happen. We need to get a development approval from council. That's the first part. So we can actually measure how many development approvals actually happened. We then need to get a building approval to say, can I actually uh, get an engineering level of, of of approval to say, hey, this thing's not made of straw and it's not going to blow over in the wind. Um, so that building approval, now not every development approval gets a building approval. And so you can see that there's a surplus between the amount of development approvals and the amount of building approvals, which is uh, what I like to call slack. So there's a whole bunch of slack in the market to say, look, there's the potential that this would be, be created, but it hasn't actually necessarily been realized. And then when you get funding approval, that means that you're actually going to construct it. So when you look at those on balance, you can actually see, hey, is there too much potential supply in the market? Am I actually uh, not necessarily putting something in the right place? Um, now, what's super interesting is because the way that COVID kind of played out, um, uh, and the artificial boom that was actually created, uh, there were very, very few development approvals that were actually done during that timeline. Uh, because firstly, at the start of COVID, property market was dropping. 
and nobody knew where COVID was going. So everyone said, whoa, I'm not going to get into that because I don't know where the bottom is. Um, so then there were no development approvals at the start of that process. Then then the, the government said, hey, hang on, we've got no population growth driving the market. The property market is actually starting to dive. We need to protect it. So they created an artificial stimulus with all of the building bonuses uh, and a whole bunch of infrastructure projects. They spent billions and billions of dollars on roads and highways and tunnels and schools and all sorts of things like that. So suddenly, the I guess the, 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 uh, the amount of building approvals took off. And so there is no slack left in the system. So all the, the development approvals got that were already in existence got consumed. Now there's no slack. <laughs> okay. Uh, so there's no there's no potential there. Uh, and so when the, the, the borders are now open, international migration is starting to come back, but where are they going to go? And that's where we got to find the supply, e.g. DAs and so forth. But what's interesting is why would people go for a DA and then not go ahead to build if their intention was to you know get a get a build done there's a combination of things and it largely comes down to the fact that uh when we look at statistics most developers are actually part-time mum and dads okay uh somewhere between 80 to 90 percent of all development approvals depending upon the council that you're in are small scale six pack and below type projects so they're people who aren't professional developers. They're not really trained in the process and they think that just getting a development approval is enough. And they forget, if you remember those three stages of funding I talked about, they forget that it takes a lot more money to actually fund the second stage. And they go, oh, suddenly I don't have it. Um, so that's one problem. Two, they don't understand the, the demographics and where are people going. They don't understand the supply and demand. And maybe they got an approval, but there's no demand to actually take that up. Um, or lastly, they don't understand the demographics of the area to say, have I built the right product for this market? And, and that's because most of them are part-time. And so uh, when I said before that Warren Buffett quote, you know, risk comes from being uneducated. They haven't taken the time to actually educate themselves on, hey, just because it can be done, should it be done? <laughs> uh, uh, and so there are a lot of DA-approved sites that, that are basically worthless. Um, as a matter of fact, 90%, 90% of all development sites are not profitable. And unfortunately, most people don't understand that. And they think that just by going through the process and getting the approval, because council will give you the approval because you've met and complied with all of council's rules about what can be built. But council don't care about the profitability of the deal. That's very true. Yeah. And it kind of makes you think, wow, you go through the whole process because it's quite costly. It's not cheap to be able to just get a development approval. It spends many hours, many consultants fees and so forth to get a DA approved. And even if it needs changes, you'll have to go back and there's additional costs involved in doing that. I mean, I'm going through one right now. And if you don't do your research um, and you don't actually meet what the market wants, then basically you are literally just throwing money at the wall. And um, I'll be happy to set that money if it doesn't go to the wall, it goes to me, I'd be happy to do that for you. But anyway, that's a, that's really, really fascinating that uh, yeah, I didn't know that stat. That's, that is phenomenally strange <laughs> for people to do that. So if you take the time to educate yourself and, and understand 
those market drivers and you, I guess, put the right product in, in the right location as the, as the demand is starting to take off, you will be successful. Um, it's when you don't put the effort into the education side of things and you create the wrong product in the wrong location, uh, that's when you, you, you know, you're almost guaranteed to go backwards. Yeah, and, and I think this kind of is really good time to sort of just talk a little bit about finding the deal that's suitable for the area and then be able to potentially use experts or outsource to people who actually do this day in, day out because, you know, as you said, a lot of the mum and dad investors, maybe they might not necessarily have the time or maybe might not have the experience and it might be actually be a good, good idea to get some experts on board to be able to find those deals and help them with that because then that would be beneficial not only just to them because they'll profit from it but also to the area because they're delivering a product that people want. Outsourcing the finding of the deal is a fantastic way for you to, to accelerate with, the, uh, with a limited amount of your own sweat equity, okay? But, and I've got a very big but here, um, you want to be very careful that you are delegating and not abdicating. Now, by delegating, it means that you actually understand how to assess the deal yourself. You have the skills in order to be able to do it. And when and you're giving that task to somebody else and you can validate when they come back to you and say, hey, I think it's a deal, you can actually validate and prove that it really is a deal. So that's delegation. That's a very smart way to actually outsource and scale, okay? Abdicating is when you give that to someone, they go and do the work and they bring it back to you and you have no ability to tell whether or not it really is a deal, okay? And so you're taking their word for it and you have no idea to be able to determine whether or not their skill is actually there or not. Uh, and so there are entire industries that uh, that are based on finding the deal for you but you've got to remember why, how they're remunerated. They're, they're remunerated by you buying the deal. They're not remunerated by how much profit you make out of the deal. And so their, their incentive is for you to buy it, not necessarily for you to profit. So there are going to be, there are going to be times when unscrupulous people will take advantage of that or, um, or people who are not intending to be unscrupulous, but they're just not educated enough to be able to assess the deal well enough. Um, they think they've assessed the deal well, but they fall into that category of just because it can be done, they don't really realize that it shouldn't be done. Uh, and so they've gone, yes, it's got lots of development potential, but they don't realize the profit potential is not there. Uh, and so it's very easy to to be given a dud deal when you when you abdicate. And this is why it's so important to actually do your own due diligence behind it. Really educate yourself to learn the reasons why a deal is stacks up or not because the more you do it, the better you become at assessing the deal. And in my opinion, I think it's smart to be able to leverage and use other people's expertise to find a deal because it saves a lot of time. I mean, I know what it's like to go and find a deal and it takes a lot of time. But if you can get someone to help you and you give them the right criteria, then you assess that deal then you'll be able to you know, move much, much quicker because there are a lot of other components that are necessary as part of any development. And sometimes it might be just worthwhile spending a bit more time on the other parts rather than going acquire a deal. Not saying you shouldn't do it, but it's you know, something that there are plenty of people out there who do it you know, full-time as their job and they love it. I think super important, educate yourself on can you actually, do you know how to assess the deal yourself? Only at that point do you determine whether or not you should outsource. 
that's so true before jumping in. Wow, we talked a lot today about this. This is great. So, maybe the one last thing is I think we'll kind of lead into this because as we've talked about the three different approaches from a passive investor to an active developer to like in between where you do semi which is basically a passive and active. Let's say for example, if you have you know, one investment approach right now, one investment property as a passive developer, or sorry, passive investor, how do you go through to potentially go into uh, like an active developer, just like, you know, myself, you know, I've been in this passive approach and considering going to development. Well, there's a couple of different ways. There's there's one that fits in the middle, which is the semi-passive investor. So there are two different approaches to being semi-passive. So an example might be, look, I bought an investment property let's just say 10 years ago, uh, and at the time it was at the outskirts of the city, but now the city has grown, uh, the population has come towards me, and all of a sudden this is now in an area that's just been rezoned or is now going through massive growth. Maybe that property now has, maybe it always had development potential, but now it's actually in a place where the demand for that product is actually super high. And so you've got a property that has got lots of development potential but you don't know what to do with it. Okay, so that so one approach is: look, do I go to you know a community like my property developer network, find a developer who knows uh, what it is they're doing? I have the property. The developer has the skills. Do we join forces and we do a profit split type arrangement um, in doing that? That's, so that's kind of one approach. Uh, second approach would be: look, I don't have that property, but I've uh, you know, I've accumulated a lot of wealth. I've got all this equity that's sitting here. I may even have some fairly decent cash flow that's actually coming out of that. Perhaps I can again go and partner with somebody, but this time I'm actually providing the cash. Remember those three parts of the deal that the, that the developer needed? Maybe I can provide the cash. The developer's got the skills, but you know, once you put your money into one deal, I've got the skills to do deal number two, deal number three, deal number four, but I don't have the cash to do those ones. So I can partner with a developer who knows what they're doing and, again, do a profit split type arrangement. So that's the kind of semi-passive approach. Uh, And then I guess the third way is go learn the skills yourself, right? Uh, Go get yourself educated. Go take the time to go do a program uh, that's going to teach you exactly what you want to do. Um, The one caution that I would say with uh, that last approach is be very, very mindful to say, well, what kind of development strategy do I want to do? Do I want to do subdivisions? Do I want to do townhouses? Do I want to do apartments? Do I want to do rooming a com? You know, there's lots of different ways to actually do uh, developments. Choose what you want to do, then find the educator that will teach you on that. Don't do it the other way around. Go to a free course uh, and the the person at the front of the stage is a great salesperson. They're going to tell you that their solution is the only solution, and it's not. There are many, many solutions. Uh, and then you find, look, their content was great, but it doesn't serve your needs and it doesn't serve your goal. Uh, and so you can have two people sitting in the same program. One person's going to get heaps of value because it did fit their needs, and the next person's going to get no value because it didn't. Um, and it really came down to, Did they take the time firstly to work out what approach did they want to take and is this the right educator for them? Absolutely and I think that's the key thing. I think just talking from personal experience, I kind of wandered a little bit in the development realm for a while because I wasn't sure. I heard people say, you know, get into construction, build something. At least that way, you know, you're going to be able to make a profit on say maybe a four-pack 
10 pack townhouse, etc. And I thought that sounded really great. And then I started to learn a lot more. When I did, then I realized, hold on, subdivision is probably a faster way to get in as an experience. I'm not saying this is you know the way to go. But I think the key thing is to speak to as many people as you can, particularly people who have been doing projects already and understand what their challenges have been because that will give you insight into what sort of suits your risk profile because everyone's going to be different. Some people might love to want to build. Other people might just want to do a subdivision, get in, get out quickly. doesn't care how it looks as long as they can make a profit. So there's so many different ways. Some people might want to be hands-on to renovation, you know. So it's just a few things just to consider as well. Yeah, and I think that's where... Uh, I guess the networking group that we run, uh, I guess Property Developer Network, we run little masterminding sessions in each of our uh, monthly networking groups where you can actually come and ask those exact questions to say, hey, what have you done? How's it worked? You know, what was your success rate? What educators did you try? All those sorts of things in a very unbiased point of view because you're actually getting, I guess, the community to help the community, okay? Uh, So it's for the tribe, by the tribe. Um, So that whole approach, I think, is fantastic. In doing so, there's a couple of points of guidance that I'll I'll give people. Um, There are lots of different development strategies and every single one of them makes money. There's no question at all about that. But fundamentally, there's only two development strategies that are scalable. And what I mean by that is I can start small, learn the skills in a relatively low-risk approach then do a slightly bigger deal using the exact same skills and then do a slightly bigger deal doing the exact same skills, okay? So those two approaches are land subdivisions. So I can do a one into two land subdivision uh, and I can do a, a building an entire suburb or an entire city that's master planned, okay? Um, so that is still the exact same strategy and you just kind of scale, uh, you know, start one into two, one into four, one into six, one into 10 and all of a sudden I'm building an entire city, right? Um, the other approach is uh, multi, uh, multi-residences. multi So that is either townhouses or apartments. They pretty much have very similar rules in most councils. Now you can do a duplex and then a triplex then a quadplex and, and go up. Um, if you're doing apartments, uh, you know, you start to go up many, many floors and you do 200, 300 apartments, build Meriton towers and all sorts of things like that. So you can start really small really low risk, small amounts of money, small amounts of uh, time and effort, and then start to grow uh, as you go. When you start with those two approaches, you're you're going to be able to like going to the gym, lift up a five kilo weight, then a 10 kilo, kilo weight, then a 20 kilo weight, and all of a sudden you look like Arnie, right? Uh, but you, you can't be Arnie first go, right? It just doesn't happen. Uh, so you've got to you've got to put the time in to actually do the hard work uh, to actually get there. And this is the key point that we're going to drive home: is that this stuff stuff does take time. It's not get rich quick overnight, but you will get there as long as you put in the time and the effort. And I think that's exactly the point that I think is so so important for every one of us. And uh, you know, you've heard from Rob twenty plus years already in investing. Myself, I've been in the, over a decade already. So. It's time, you know, and you can only learn from that. The one open loop that we left right at the very, very start of this that I'd like to close out just to, to end our session, mate. Um, we talked about the, uh, the ultimate goal being financial freedom, passive cash flow. How do we use an active approach to become that passive investor? Uh, well, the ideal goal, and, and I'll ask you a loaded question, mate. You, you fund development deals. 
what is the typical profit on cost that most developers are actually aiming for? They're always saying about that 20%. About 20%. That is almost a universal answer that I get when I ask that question. So if we look at a 20% profit on cost, then there's a magic number of six. That is, if I do six of something, if I sell five, it pays the costs, which means that the sixth one is free. Now, if it's free, that means I have no debt on it. That means it's 100% positive cash flow. Um, It's going to grow with the market every seven to 10 years. Uh, The rent is going to go up as the market actually starts to go up and it becomes the passive cash flow that we're looking for. Now, if we're doing that in, I guess, most of the capital cities, we're going to get somewhere between 20 and 25K net return after management fees as positive cash flow on that, which means that for most people, it's somewhere between three and five properties owned outright will actually make them financially free. So if you think about that, if we did, if we said, let's just say four for somewhere in the middle, that's four projects to become financially free. Now, the trick is, how do I learn how to do a six pack? Well, you do a smaller version of that, do a four pack. And how do I do a four pack? Well, do a smaller version of that, I do a two pack. And this is why scalability is really important. So you might do two to get yourself the skills in, in, in how to actually do that kind of deal and four to get yourself out, which means that most people, uh, somewhere between three to five years, um, they can get themselves out. Thank you to Rob Flox, our guest on this special episode of Property Investory. Do you find yourself stressed out not knowing how or where to find the best property deals or what the best strategy is to build a wealth generating portfolio? Well, Dragon Dominski can help you while you save time and money. With about two decades of experience as an investor and expert buyer's agent, he finds positively geared properties with development potentials and secures and negotiates off-market deals for his clients. Now, he's offering you a no-obligation 45-minute strategy call to get you started. Just simply text the code BAA with your name and email address to 0405-105-074 to get your no-obligation free 45-minute strategy call. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.